Well, we're going to read the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and you'll find our reading on page 991 of the Pew Bibles. Page 991. We're going to read all of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. And then we'll be thinking about these verses later on in our service. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's on page 991 of the Pew Bibles. And as we read this part of the Bible, we of course remember that God's word to us is truth, that we can trust it, that we can rely on it, and we can know that this is what he would say to us. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It says this, it says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to think about this chapter together this morning. You'll know that a few weeks ago, we started a series on First Timothy, and uh, we're thinking this morning about chapter 2, having already thought about chapter 1. One of the things we're committed to here in church is that we take a book of the Bible and just take each passage as it comes, each section, and that's what we're doing this morning, First Timothy chapter 2, and you'll find it on page 991 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, as we begin this morning, let me get you to imagine what it's like to move in and live with a different family. That's a situation that unfortunately some people in our world have to experience. It could be a child who is going through the fostering or adoption process, or it could even be a family from Ukraine who have resettled in other parts of Europe. Particularly in the case of a child, that kind of experience can be challenging. Being constantly moved around and being asked to adapt to different families and customs and rules can be really quite difficult. You can get very mixed up in terms of what you're supposed to do very, very easily. The same could be said for someone from Ukraine who's been displaced and has come to live, say, in Northern Ireland. Ukrainian life and culture is very different to Northern Irish life and culture. 
There are all sorts of little quirks and ways that we have that someone from Eastern Europe would find very strange and very different. Now, I've got you to imagine those scenarios because it's not that different from our experience as followers of the Lord Jesus. The Bible teaches us that if we have believed in Jesus, then we have been adopted into a new family and the new family rules are different to the ones we were previously following. It's not hard to think about some of the new family rules that we're called to follow. We're called to love one another. We're called to give ourselves in service to the Lord. We're called to honor him with our resources and so on. There are some family rules in our passage today and they're perhaps some of the more controversial rules. You'll remember that Paul is the author of 1 Timothy and his purpose in writing is really stated really clearly in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Just turn over the page in your pew Bibles to see those verses. Chapter 3, 14 and 15, Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, as I've said in this series, Paul isn't focused on our external behavior, but he's focused on our hearts. It's not so much that First Timothy is about how we behave in church on Sundays as it is about how we behave as the church out in the world through the week and also on Sundays. It's with all of that in mind that we come to First Timothy chapter 2. This is a controversial passage, certainly the, the, the last part of it, particularly in our own cultural context. Uh, you will know that I have preached on this passage during my time here. Uh, back in March 2020, in a series on the eldership, we thought about men and women in the church. We were quite specific in that sermon in that we focused on 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. This morning, we're looking at the whole chapter. And my guess is that you will know something of what I'm about to say. What we're going to see this morning shouldn't really surprise you. Uh, a couple of years ago, when I preached on this same passage, we thought about how we live in a generation that regards the Bible's teaching on men and women in the church as backward, outdated, out of touch, even wrong or dangerous. Since March 2020, our culture has shifted even further, I think. But just because our culture regards what the Bible teaches as backward, outdated, out of touch, even wrong, that doesn't mean we should avoid it. In fact, we should embrace it and seek to understand it more thoroughly so that we're able to defend it and explain it to others. When we come to, to difficult and controversial texts like the one in front of us this morning, there are all sorts of helpful things that we should remember about what the Bible says about itself. So all scripture is breathed out by God. What was written in former days was written for our instruction. As we look at 1 Timothy 2, the apostle Peter says something that is very, very helpful and something that we need to remember. At the end of 2 Peter, Peter mentions Paul's, Paul and Paul's writings, his New Testament letters, and he says this. He says, there are some things in them, that's Paul's writings, part of the New Testament, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What Peter's saying there is hugely encouraging. He was one of the 12 apostles and he was taught by Jesus and instructed by Jesus. He led the early church. If you read his sermons in Acts, you'll, you'll see that he's, he's, he's very sharp theologically. He was able to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament and to the work of Christ. But he says in 2 Peter 3, 16, he found some of what Paul taught and wrote difficult to understand. Now, it's probably not the case that he was referring to this passage, but there is a sense in which we put ourselves in Peter's shoes as we look at 1 Timothy. 
there are some things written in this letter by Paul that are hard to understand, especially in the world we live in today. Despite finding what Paul says difficult to understand, we should pray that the Lord would help us to think thoroughly and biblically about the issue before us this morning. Before we dive into 1 Timothy 2, let me just remind us of what we've seen so far in this series. In the first chapter, Paul is concerned about false teaching and what we believe. We saw that only the truth advances God's work, only the truth shows us how to live, and only the truth reaches out to the world. Last week, we took a uh, look at Paul's detailed explanation of the truth of the gospel. He identified himself as the worst sinner who ever lived, someone who was hopelessly lost, but has been incredibly loved. And in light of that, he's eternally grateful. Having started the letter by talking about doctrine, Paul now moves on to the conduct of public worship. In language that we might know better, Paul moves on to talk about what should happen in church on Sundays. In this section, he's concerned about what happens in church on Sundays and also how church life is structured in terms of the roles men and women play within the church. With all that in mind, we've said a lot in terms of introduction, but with all that in mind, what we're going to do this morning is think about this passage under three headings. We're going to do it in a slightly different way, though. We're going to think about the passage backwards, and I hope the reason for doing that becomes clear towards the end. You'll hopefully be able to follow me and understand why we're doing it this way. The three things we're going to think about this morning are the role of women, the role of men, and the role of everyone. So you'll see the backward flow there. We're starting backwards, but we're starting with women, going to men, and then moving to everyone. As we think about this passage, let's all pray that we would come under the authority of the Bible and that we would be teachable this morning. First of all, in the role of women, what does Paul say women should do? We'll look at verses 9 and 10. He says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. In these verses, Paul says that women should be adorned with two things. Their lives should be marked in two ways, modesty and character. There's some historical context that is worth mentioning. One of the problems in the church at Ephesus was that women were dressing like those in the culture around them. In terms of modesty, Paul is not categorically forbidding women to style their hair or wear jewellery or nice clothing. What he is saying, though, is that women shouldn't follow the example of the culture around them. Now, I am not a fashion guru by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, One of the things that Lynn changed about me when we first started going out was that she managed to get me to stop wearing football shirts and tracksuit bottoms because that was all that I wore. Honestly, if you saw me 10 years ago, football shirts, tracksuit bottoms, that was all I wore. All of a sudden, I was wearing things like chinos and shirts, and it was like, who is this guy? But anyway, I realized that a man standing up telling women what they can and can't wear sounds a little bit like something from a bygone day. But here's the contemporary application of what Paul says in these verses. He's, He's really just saying Christian women shouldn't style themselves on on, on people like singers or actresses or social media influencers. And that makes a lot of sense, I think. Singers, actresses, social media influencers dress in ways that can be immodest. You can see that from music videos, from award ceremonies, from Instagram posts. You should notice that Paul begins positively. He says, women should adorn themselves Uh, That word adorn is an old word, but it just means to make more beautiful or more attractive. Uh, And the logic of what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying 
By dressing modestly and by not wearing suggestive clothing, women are actually making themselves more beautiful. As a mention of character too, women should adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul is saying that there are two kinds of beauty, physical and moral. Uh, There's a brilliant example of this in the Bible itself. It's the story of Leah and Rachel. They were both married to Jacob, but he favored Rachel over Leah simply because of her physical appearance. But spiritually speaking, Leah was more beautiful than Rachel and Jesus would eventually come from Leah's line. Paul is saying that the character of women is important. Godly character is worth paying attention to above all things. The problem in Ephesus was that when people thought of women from the church, they didn't think they were godly. Paul says women should be adorned with modesty and godly character. Paul moves on in verses 11 to 15 to talk about the role of women within the formal life of church. He says this in verses 11 to 15. He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So this is the controversial bit. Paul is saying that women can't do two things. Women can't preach or teach in a mixed gathering. A mixed gathering, for example, like this within a church family. And he's also saying that women can't have a a ruling role in the church. They they can't be elders. Now, I'm not going to go over all the opinions on this passage because there are a lot of opinions on this passage But there are three broad positions when it comes to the role of women within churches. There's the egalitarian left, which says that Paul is wrong, that what he says in this passage is outdated and only applies to Ephesus. The the, the egalitarian left also mask differences between men and women, and they have identical roles within the church. Men and women can be elders and ministers and so on. That's the egalitarian left. Then there's the domineering right, which says that Paul is right, but also implicitly says that men are more important than women. There's a harsh leadership and strong belief that women should remain silent, completely silent in church, and have no public role. And then there's the the complementarian middle. This is the view that Paul is teaching that men and women are equal in status, dignity, and humanity, but are different in terms of role. It's the view that women can't teach in a mixed setting, but can speak in certain contexts. Now, I am a complementarian. You you will know that because I've said that before. The complementarian position has been the position of the church historically, really for the past 2,000 years. It only began to change from 1969 onwards in the last 50 years. And that kind of fits with what was happening in the 1960s. There was a a great cultural and sexual revolution and the rise of the feminist movement. Boundaries that had previously not been crossed were broken down and removed. In our era, we are reaping what was sown in the 1960s. What Paul does in verses 13 and 14 is very important too. As he presents his case, he goes back to the creation account in Genesis He references how God created things in the beginning. So look at what he says. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 
So by going back to creation, Paul is saying that there's an order in the nuclear family and also in the church. The, the point of verse 14 is not that Eve was more gullible than Adam. It's not that women are more gullible than men. Eve's sin wasn't naivety, but was a willful attempt to overthrow the creation order. She hoped that in eating from the tree that her eyes would be opened and that she would be like God. The role of women then, according to Paul, is to be adorned by modesty and godly character. And women are not permitted to preach in a mixed gathering or hold the office of an elder. Before we move on, let me just say briefly that this is not PCI's position. I do think our denomination is out of step with the Bible on this issue, though. Our denomination's position on this issue has weakened our stance on other issues. We need to remember that we can't do better than the Bible on any issue, including this one. That's the role of women then. What about the role of men? We've said enough about the ladies. Let's move on to the men. That's our second point this morning, the, the, the role of men. We're moving backwards in the passage. What does Paul say men are to do? Verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What, 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 what we can tell from this verse is that there was some disagreement within the church at Ephesus. We know that they have a problem with false teaching, but it also appears that men's attitudes were all wrong when they were praying or when they were in worship. Paul mentions hindrances to prayer in verse 8. There are three of them, sin, anger, and quarreling. The reference to holy hands reminds us of Psalm 24. Uh, you'll remember that in that psalm, those who wish to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place must have clean hands and a pure heart. Some of the men in Ephesus weren't like that. There is an echo of Isaiah 1 and the Lord's prophecy against wicked Judah here. In Isaiah 1.15, the Lord says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The Lord is saying there that there are some people who are praying, but who are not in the right place spiritually. The outward signs don't match the inward reality. Having hands that are covered with sin leaves, with sin leaves men in the wrong place spiritually to pray. And it's also the same with anger and quarreling. It's inappropriate to approach God in prayer if we're harboring resentment or bitterness against him or other people. And that's the same when it comes to worship. The Bible simply teaches that we shouldn't come to worship unless we've first been reconciled to someone that we have a difficult situation with. But what Paul wants in 1 Timothy 2 is that he wants men to be at the forefront of spiritual leadership. That's actually the challenge of this passage. The weight of the application in this section is actually towards men. Men need to step up in terms of spiritual leadership. Sadly, men are not leading in some church families. Let me show you a painting by an artist called Norman Rockwell. It's going to appear on the screen. The title of the painting is Easter morning, and it shows a family going out to church led by the mother, and the father is sitting there in his chair reading the paper. There's little doubt in the artist's mind that, that church is really just for women and children, although the young boy in the back is clearly beginning to wonder why he has to go to church if dad doesn't. You see him glancing in his dad's direction. The point of the painting is the point of the passage for men within church life. If the church is going to be in any way credible and attractive to men, it needs to have more men at the heart of its leadership. In particular, men need to be taking the lead in terms of youth and children's ministry. Younger fellas, young boys 
need good, godly men to give them an example. Too often men come to church and say, take my wife and let me be. We need more men to say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. So if men are going to be leaders, how are we doing? Are we men of God? That's the application from this section. It is some hard things to say about the role of women, but you know, it has even more challenging implications for men. Too often men sit back. So men, how are we doing? Men, men, we also need to be careful about how we talk about these things. It's fine to have an opinion on this issue, but we need to be really careful about our tone. 1 Timothy 2 is not a license for women to be treated harshly. 1 Timothy 2 is not a license for any kinds of abuse, verbal, physical, mental, or spiritual. 1 Timothy 2 is also not a license to make silly or offhand comments about the role of women within church life, like they're only here to make the tea. They are absolutely not. They are absolutely not. We have to be careful, men. This passage is not about male or or female superiority. Men, we, we all know that women are smarter than us. We've known that since we were at school. It's also a cast iron fact fact that more women are involved in church life than men are. So this passage is challenging things to say about the role of, of women, but men, we need to step up in terms of spiritual leadership. The role of women, the role of men, the role of everyone. We're moving backwards, and now we're going to see what we're all to do. The, the, the role of everyone is explained in verses 1 to 7. As church families gather together, they are to do at least three things, according to Paul. The first is to pray. Paul says we're to pray for all people, including those in positions of leadership. The second is to live a a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The third is that we should worship our Savior. In verse 4, Paul goes off on a bit of a tangent. He mentions God our Savior at the end of verse 3. And then he goes on to tell us something of God's heart. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth And there's only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul's tangent takes him back to the truth that he has so passionately explained in the previous section. He explains the glorious gospel of God in even more detail for us. And the point, I think, is this. The role of everyone is to worship our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Through the simple call of God, on each and every one of us, men and women, is to trust in Jesus, to believe in him, and then to worship him with God's people. Something to notice in verses 1 to 7 is that Paul, as he talks about public worship, doesn't mention anything about segregation. In some strands of Judaism, men and women were separated for worship. Uh, When I was in Israel, we went to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, and there's there's a partition there to separate men and women from worshiping together. But Paul doesn't mention that at all. In his mind, men and women are equal but different. Men and women must come to God in the same way, namely by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says as much in another New Testament letter. This is Galatians 3, 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The role of everyone is to trust and believe in Jesus for salvation. And having done that, we're to worship him with God's people. 
the role of women known for their modesty and character, but not able to preach in a mixed gathering and not able to hold ruling office in church life. The role of men to be spiritual leaders, to step up. The role of everyone to trust and believe in Jesus and to worship him with God's people. There are some things in the writings of Paul that are hard to understand. Men and women are equal but different and both have a role to play in church life. Do you know, I actually don't think that this passage is about what men can do and what women can't do. It's actually about what we can do together when we realize and embrace our God-given roles within his church. This passage is often viewed negatively, but I actually think it's really quite positive. What Paul has in mind is a church family that is flourishing because it's working together. And that's what we want here in Bukna, a church family that is flourishing because it's following God's words. And that's the final point of application, I think. This issue is about us taking God at his word and trusting that what he says is true and then applying it to the life of our church family. If we think that we can do better than the Bible, then we're in a bad place as individuals, as a church, and also as a denomination. We really can't do better than the Bible. There are some things in the writings of Paul that are hard to understand. There are some new family rules that are hard for us to comprehend. There are family rules which seem ridiculous to the world around us. But God knows best, and what he says to us in his word is for our good. You see, it's his desire that we, would, that we would joyfully live out his creation order in his family. And it's his plan that as we do so, that the gospel would continue to go out in power. We're going to pray now. And what we're going to pray is the same prayer that we prayed following the sermon on this passage two years ago. And we're going to ask God to help us understand Paul's teaching here, but also that he would bless us as a church family. So let's pray together. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we recognize that there are some things in your word that are hard for us to understand. We thank you for the gift of your spirit, though, the spirit who empowers us and works so that we might grow in godliness and in faith. And may he work in all of our hearts and help us to meditate and think through what your word says on this topic. Father, we realize that as Christians, we're called to be different from the world We're called to shine like stars in the midst of a wicked generation. On this issue, help us to shine like stars. Help us to show a different and better way of living. Help us to be radically different and in that way be compelling and attractive. Our great God, we're so thankful for the role that women play in the church. We thank you for godly mothers, grandmothers, faithful Sunday school teachers, faithful organizational leaders who have have pointed many of us to Christ. We thank you too for godly men who, who also pointed us to the Savior. But we especially pray this morning that you would raise up a generation of godly men broadly within our denomination and specifically within our church family. Going forward, Lord, help us all to work together as a church family. Help us to be a, a group of people committed to your word and committed to telling others about you. Help us to grasp the vision of how you would have us live and laugh and serve and suffer in this world. Help us to joyfully live out the creation order. And as we do so, may you come in saving power 
and rescue many within our area. Heavenly Father, you are wise beyond measure. Help us all as we continue to think this subject through in our hearts and minds. Help us to remember your family rules are for our good and for your glory. Give us much wisdom and grace. And we pray all these things in Jesus' gracious name. Amen.